0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Liset Barón Carvajal, a host of the channel. Here at the MBN, we know that the world is facing a tremendous challenge, and that many of you are dealing to the best of your abilities with the consequences of this pandemic. We hope that in the midst of all, these interviews can help you face the dread and isolation, or at the very least, that they can distract you and help you think in something else. This is why today. I will be talking to Paulo Rinot about his wonderful book, The Sexual Question, A History of Prostitution in Peru, 1850s-1950s, published by Cambridge University Press in 2020. Welcome, Paulo. Thank you for talking to me, especially in this moment.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Okay, so I'm so happy to have you here. I love this book. Uh, but before we talked about the book, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about your history. So you're an associate professor of Latin American history at the University College London. So you we're talking, it's the first time I interview someone that is in Europe. So you pursued your undergraduate and graduate degrees in the UK. Um, you started by studying economic history, but then you move on to focus more specifically on Latin American history or more generally, let's put it like that. So tell us a little bit about the path that led you here and why you eventually became interested in history.
1: Uh, Yeah, sure. So I suppose a place to start is that I I was born in Peru to Peruvian parents, um, but spent most of my childhood in Europe, first in France and then in the UK. But I grew up in a very Peruvian household with left-wing politics, and Peru was very much at the center of everything that went on in the family. So, uh, when I went to university, I guess my goal, like perhaps a lot of kids who grew up in left wing families, was to change the world. So, I studied economics for one term and realized that uh, the economics that I was being taught wasn't going to change the world. It was uh, going to make someone a lot of money somewhere, but it wasn't going to do anything uh, that was of interest to me. So, I switched to economic history which um, was a lot closer to the kind of interest that I had at the time. And, uh, and then I went to, to Oxford to do my graduate studies. I was drawn there ostensibly because uh, Rosemary Thorpe, who is an economic historian of Peru, was based there at the time, and I was interested to work with her. Uh, and then when I was in Oxford, I became more interested in social history, political history, And I ended up working with uh, Alan Knight, a historian of Mexico. So that's the sort of personal academic trajectory. I was lucky to uh, grow up in in an environment where there was a lot of intellectual discussion. And a very close friend of my parents is uh, the proven historian Nelson Manrique. And so uh, through those personal collections, I I suppose I got interested in, in history quite early on, um, but my my training really came at uh, university.
0: Uh, great. That explains too much. And I, it probably explains the next question I'm going to make. So The Sexual Question is not your first book. So you have another monograph titled The Allure of Labour, Workers' Race, and the Making of the Peruvian State. This was published in 2011. You've also been editor and co-editor of many other volumes. Uh, I believe one or a couple of them with Alan Knight. So, And you you cover a very diverse set of topics, comic books, uh, the Great Depression in Latin America, Che Guevara's travels, so among many other different uh, topics. So this is a very impressive record of publication. And I noticed that you have published almost of all of your work, both in English and Spanish. Um, so I would love... Uh, for you to tell our listeners um, how you came to the topic of this book in particular. It seems by your introduction that a lot had to do with archival serendipity, but uh, I guess in a more general sense, I would like for you to tell us how you move between such varied topics, different languages, and different audiences as well. Do you have a preferred language with which uh, you usually write, or does that depend on the project? Do you find it at all difficult to go back and forth between languages. I certainly have uh, struggled with that. So can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Sure. So, I, I mean, I think my academic language is definitely English. I, I'm fluent in French and Spanish, but I, I find it harder to, to write you know, academic stuff in, in those languages. And you know, for career purposes, my, my strategy has always been to publish in English whenever possible because that's what, you know, the sort of career demands. But I've also tried to make sure that whatever I publish in English is also available in Spanish, because I want to, you know, establish a dialogue with readers in in Peru in particular, but in Latin America, more generally. So that's really my kind of language strategy or policy, if you want to call it that, you know, because I've Trained in British universities, I'm more comfortable in writing in in English. But um, I have I have written in Spanish and French, though so I usually you know ask someone to to go over the the style and uh, and so forth. And as to the topics, so my my PhD dissertation focused on the 1920s and 1930s in Peru. Uh, It was a kind of a labor history project. And after I completed the the station in 2000, uh, I sort of left the the station to one side. I didn't touch it for a few years, focused on other things that I got interested in. I was lucky that the sort of jobs I got allowed me to do that. Um, So uh, I wrote uh, an article on the history of suicide in early 20th century Peru. I put together a a group of people uh, for an edited volume on uh, Che Guevara's early travels. Arising from my dissertation work, I did a project on the Great Depression that uh, Alan Knight uh, co-edited with me. These were all topics that in some ways are are related to each other, but that grew out of just my interests, I suppose. And then uh, I went back to my dissertation around 2005-2006 and it took me a few years to write it up as a as an academic monograph and in the end the book I published in 2011 is very different to the dissertation uh, maybe there's about I don't know 20% of the dissertation left in the book and it, it changed in approach In I did a lot more work on it and uh, yeah it ended up as some less a history of labor, though labor is very much at the center of it, and more a history of the the making of the Peruvian state and the role of race and racialization in that process. Uh, So that's a little bit the trajectory that then got me to this new book, The The Sexual Question. And as I uh, mentioned in the introduction, I, I I got into this topic uh, because of the sources that I was looking at. I was reading police reports uh, that focused primarily on anarchists and members of APRA and, and so forth. And I started to find some letters written by, by women who self-identified as prostitutes. These were letters that were sent to the prefect of Lima. And I knew that these sources were rare. Uh, I'd read a few books on the history of prostitution and you know what what is often missing in those books is the the voices of of, of women who sold sex if you like. Uh so I made some notes and uh yeah and and the, the project sort of grew out of that.
0: Yeah, wonderful. And it's it's such a I don't know, a good thing to hear because I I feel like when I'm in the archive sometimes I also have like sources that I find interesting that are not strictly related to my project and then I'm like I wonder if I should pay attention to them or not so it's great to hear like that this can be so useful for for the in the long run um so I guess now we can move to the book and and here I think a good way to introduce the book to our listeners is if you talk a little bit about the sexual question right what is the sexual question so you tell us that The sexual question refers to the sexual issues that stood in the way of the flourishing of of population and the solutions that were devised to address such problems. So why do you use prostitution specifically as a vehicle to analyze this problem? Because I guess there are other ways to do that too. But uh, why is it useful to, to shed light into this problem you are analyzing in the book? And here I think it can be useful if you talk about the importance of Foucault, in your work, I think uh, people—I mean, scholars that focus on the late 19th century and early 20th century—find, if in Foucault, a great tool and resource. But um, as you tell us in the book, even if you are inspired by Foucault. Um, you, alongside other scholars such as uh, Rita Felsky, you argued that what is missing in Foucault is a more careful examination of the agents that intervene in the story, and you want to do that, and you actually do that very well. So, can you tell us a little bit about this?
1: Yeah. So the the um, the title and this this term, if you like, the sexual question, was something I came up with, and and, and this sort of relates back to my first project, my first book, which Was ostensibly on the social question in late 19th and early 20th century Peru. So, if the social question were, you know, those series of issues that industrialization and urbanization created, and particularly in relation to the rise of the labor movement in in Europe, and also refers to the series of policies, measures that governments introduced to, to address labor militancy or, you know, urban unrest and things like that. Uh, with sexual question, I was trying to find a concept that captured an analogous process, if you like, uh, that is to say, how problems associated with uh, the sexual came to be seen as problems, right? Or issues that were associated with the sexual came to be seen as problems, problems that required solutions uh, and, and you know, and then look. I looked also at what those solutions uh, were, how they were formulated and, and implemented. So that's what the, the sexual question refers to. And in fact, there is a, a book by a, a French uh, sexologist, Auguste Forel, uh, from the 1890s, titled The Sexual Question. Though I didn't know this when I uh, came up with the concept to organize my thoughts, but it's I think it's uh, quite um, Telling that you know, uh, Forel had come up with the same concept uh, over a hundred years ago to refer to a very similar way of approaching this issue. So Foucault, uh, of course, is 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 influential in 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 all of this because of his work on on the history of sexuality. But in fact, I, I relied on Foucault a great deal more in my first book. In, in that book, I I drew on his um, Idea of governmentality a lot to make sense of uh, the way that the Peruvian state came to deal with the labor question. In this book, um, obviously, I I draw on Foucault and you know all the work that has been influenced by his insights on you know the, the kind of discursive construction of sexuality, how sexuality becomes part of strategies of discipline um how sexuality becomes central to a kind of biopolitical project. Uh, but in the end, I, I think I spend more time uh showing that uh, all of this is sort of limited or constrained by multiple agencies, uh the agencies of you know, the women uh who sold sex in early 20th century Peru. Um and although I do this less successfully, also, the agency of the men who bought who bought the sex from those women. So, yeah, I suppose Foucault is there, but in in that uh, in that tweaked way by by paying attention to uh, the actors that often you know are, are neglected in, in very kind of Foucauldian readings of of the history of sexuality.
0: Yeah. No, and I think this is a great way to see how Foucault can be useful. Uh, for historians, but to see how paying real attention to very specific historical processes actually uh, show the limitations of Foucault, which is, you know, al- also useful. Um, okay, so let's move on to, let's say, the more specific intervention in your book, what your book is doing. So you uh, focus specifically on prostitution uh, and venereal disease and their government. So in particular, about how ideas about male and female sexuality informed attempts to govern prostitution and venereal disease. You ask uh, why regulation of prostitution was adopted in Peru in the 1920s, and then why it was seemingly abandoned in the 1950s. So here the creation and then the closure of La Victoria, Lima's Barrio Rojo, or Red Light District, is essential. And this is how you start uh, your introduction. So I think it would be useful for our listeners if you situate Lima's case in a comparative perspective, as you do in the book, because regulation was, as you explain, a fairly common strategy, but one that in many countries in the world, uh, in Latin America as well, was implemented in the second half of the 19th century. So not in the early 20th century. So this strategy of regulation, you tell us, contributed to two developments that characterize the so-called medicalization of Latin American societies. One was the pathologization of societies, and and the other was uh, the possibility of regeneration and quote-unquote civilization. So tell us more about these linked aspects of medicalization, and maybe here you can tell us why Lima was, to say it in a way, late in this global history of prostitution
1: yeah so i think maybe to to start it, it would be useful to explain how regulation emerges as a paradigm to manage or govern prostitution and also to place it alongside the other paradigm the other dominant paradigm in the 19th and 20th centuries which is called a- abolition so so regulation Although you know, in some ways, it 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 has a much older history, uh, going back to well as far back as you can, perhaps. You know, it was 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 a, a system of policies that come to be associated primarily with early nineteenth-century France. Does in relation to urban prostitution, primarily, which you know is a series of measures such as the creation of red light districts, so places where within cities where prostitution is permitted policies to kind of medically police prostitutes so regular uh, medical inspections registration of prostitutes with the police or, or some uh, some type of uh, authority and you know regulations establishing what can happen in brothels and what can't and so forth uh, so these are the, the the kinds of policies associated with regulation that they tend to be associated primarily with the French model. uh, And then they're adopted elsewhere in Europe and uh, in European colonies around the world and indeed in Latin America and the United States at different times. Together with regulation, another kind of paradigm emerges in the mid-19th century, which comes to be known as abolition. And this is basically a critique of regulation. And I mean, Basic argument is that regulation doesn't achieve what it sets out to do, which is to control the moral impact of prostitution, but even more so the public health impact, because of this association between prostitution and the spread of venereal uh, disease, particularly syphilis. And so those who support abolition are against the implementation of regulation. And here, the, I mean, the most famous case is, is that of the campaigns led against the implementation of regulation in garrison towns in England uh, in the second half of the 19th century. So these are the two kind of paradigms and the the history of prostitution and its government in Peru is really a history of these two paradigms and how they, they play off each other, how different actors align on one side or the other at different times. And the story I tell is one of how regulation, after you know, not being very successful in establishing itself as the dominant paradigm in the 19th century, eventually succeeds in a limited way, because really it's only implemented in, in Lima, not much beyond it. Uh, and then how by the 1950s, uh, abolitionist positions uh, gained much more uh, currency and the you know, the chief achievement of the regulationists, which was the establishment of Lima's red-light district in, in La Victoria, this district of Lima, is, is closed down. Now, in practice, the closing down of, of the red-light district doesn't really signal the end of regulation because, as I mentioned in the conclusion to the book, in a way, Peru still has a kind of... Um, regulationist system in that you can still obtain a license to run a brothel, and there are official regulated brothels still today in Lima. But but the closure of the red light district, I I think, does signal a major victory for the abolitionist cause because of the the extent to which the red light district was associated with uh, regulation. So that. Takes me back to your question about medicalization, and and yes, I, I mean I see the create the implementation of, of regulation in the context of this process whereby Latin American societies come to be understood in you know through this sort of medical medicalized gaze as uh, societies that are uh, diseased or ill, and that need to be uh, you know brought back to health through the actions of medical doctors and and other Experts and so, in that process, you know, you have these two moments or or, uh, aspects. One is that a kind of diagnosis of pathology. You know, these are societies that are ill or sick and that need need uh, attention. But also the the idea that one can, through you know, the implementation of correct measures, uh, bring the patient back to health. Right. So this is the the regeneration. Element. And this is, of course, a discourse in which a whole series of expert actors, from medical doctors to lawyers to increasingly in the 20th century social scientists, they all participate in this twin process of diagnosing disease and devising or proposing solutions. So why did regulation coblate to, to Lima? Uh, to be honest, I, I don't think I provide a very satisfactory answer to this in the book. I mean, I I I, I do show that it came late because certainly compared to uh, say Cuba, Mexico, Argentina, where uh, regulation is introduced much earlier, the introduction of regulation in Peru comes comes later. And I show in the first chapter that you know there were a whole series of proposals put forward by uh, medical doctors and by others in the nineteenth century to introduce uh, a system of regulation very much on the French model. And I also showed that there was resistance from a series of actors, the church, uh, conservative sectors, even an interesting character that I talk about, uh, the Agente Fiscal or Attorney General uh, Manuel Galvez, who takes a very clearly abolitionist position in rejecting proposals put forward. For regulation in the 1880s, but why exactly in the early 20th century regulation eventually triumphs? I can't pinpoint it, but but we do see you know by 1905 a decree, uh, which is called the, the decree of police licences and fines, which ostensibly creates a, a legal framework for regulation that follows very much the you know, the, the French model I described uh, before. So it establishes where brothels can operate, who can work in the brothel, what uh, kind of uh, licenses need to be paid by the brothel owner, by women working in the brothel, things like, you know, what time the brothel must uh, stop the music if there's any music that for- forbids the selling of alcohol, et cetera, et cetera. So, why it comes late? I the answer I can I can come to this is because there's a lot of opposition. But of course, there was opposition elsewhere too. So it, whether there was more in Peru than than in other countries, uh, is not entirely clear to me. But but certainly by the, the the early 20th century, we see it. It's there. It's there's a system for it. At the same time, it's implemented very slowly, haltingly. It's not a, a you know a, a system that uh, has a before and an after. It comes in, in into existence in a very unclear way, at least as far as I can establish from the archive.
0: Yeah, and I think here, I think this is why it's so useful that you situate your work globally, but also you're very clear that the Peru has very specific historical conditions. So there's no set script, right, in this history of prostitution. And you're showing us both The global influences, the global debate that's going on around, but also the specific historical circumstances of Peru that explain uh, why certain things happen in certain moments and not in others. Um, Yeah. But you're not interested um, solely to talk uh, to scholars that have written about prostitution, uh, even if that is an important part of your project. You're also interested in other sets of literatures. You, for example, also situated your work within the global history of sexual science and also the history of the state in Peru and Latin America. So this last like the history of the state makes sense because you t- told us your first project was clearly situated within this literature. Um, so I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about about this historiographical debates or dialogues, as you call them. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I just, I guess I, I am a historian of medicine. So I wonder if when you began this project, you knew that uh this literature was going to be so important or did this happen as you were like working on the project and uh because many of the articles you quote about global history of science in latin america i think came in the in the like into 2000s uh 2010s so i wonder if this was organically uh, develop as you were working on the project, or if you knew when you started that this was going to be a very important part of the project?
1: Right. I mean, I, I had read a few classic studies like, you know, uh, Walkowitz's work on, on Victorian England, and, and of course, Donna Guy's, uh, you know, seminal study of prostitution in Argentina. And so I, I had some idea of what a study of the history of prostitution might might look like. But, but really, the, the research was very kind of inductive, uh, led by the sort of sources that I came across in the archive, which, as I mentioned before, were ostensibly you know, police uh, correspondence or correspondence with the, the police, uh, very often letters written by prostitutes or even more so by uh, vecinos or you know neighbors who were complaining about the brothels in the, you know in their streets and things like that so th- those were the sources that got me interested in in the project and obviously as I well, when I decided that I would I would continue with this I, I had to go beyond those sources so one area that that, that proved very fruitful uh, one one type of source that became very fruitful were uh, medical journals because obviously you know doctors were very concerned with venereal disease in this period and so that brought them to talk also about prostitution and regulation and 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 so forth although as i show in the book you know their, their focus on prostitutes is very much a product of, of history i mean by by the 1930s they're starting to realize that Actually, the main vector of venereal disease contagion are not prostitutes, but rather you know, just young people who are having unprotected sex. Uh, but certainly in, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, most doctors who are writing about venereal disease are also writing about prostitution. So I found a lot of material uh, there in medical journals and medical theses, and I, I use them a great deal in in the book. So yes, I mean, I established these dialogues with, I guess, three broad fields, the the history of gender and sexuality, the history of medicine and, and public health, and, and the history of the state. You know, it's the, the sort of topic that that forces you to to branch out into these broader uh, fields or, or subfields, because it's very much at the, the intersection of, of the three and i try to read as as broadly as possible not just on latin america but you know on europe uh, africa asia there's such such a rich historiography on the history of prostitution on the history of venereal disease um, and in a sense you know it it's a bit silly to put it this way but the, the book on peru was missing right there are great books on the history of prostitution in mexico in cuba in argentina brazil Chile Colombia and there, you know there, there there were some studies on the history of prostitution in in, in Peru uh, in, in, including a, a very good anthropological study by Lorraine Nensel, which focused primarily on her ethnography of of sex workers in the 1990s but which includes a very detailed uh, account of the historical development of prostitution and and regulation but there, there there was no kind of archive based study and that, that's where i i thought my contribution could be
0: yeah definitely and this book i think is so it can be useful for many different uh, scholars audiences so it's not just for people interested in peru or south america or latin america but also for yeah for for students uh professors interested in gender and sexuality Uh, The history of the state, public health and medicine, and also, as we're going to talk about a little bit later, about race, because race also comes in in your story, and it it has a predominant, like, an important role as well. Yeah. Um. So I want us. I think we've covered some of the basics. So I would like us to move to the chapters. Um. That uh. You you divided the book in six chapters that move. More or less chronologically, or sometimes there's a little bit overlap between them. But I, I think we can skip chapter one, which is titled Regulating Prostitution, which is where you examine the debates over re- the regulation of prostitution that took place in the 19th century. A little bit because you have talked about this before, uh, and also because I think the heart of your of your book is located in the next chapters. So if if our readers, if our listeners are interested in in these debates around regulation in the late 19th century, they can go to that chapter. Um, but I think we, sh- we should talk about chapters two and three together. So in chapter two, which is titled Protected Men, you tell us how the implementation of regulation in Lima took place in the first decades of the 20th century. And I mean, even if you say you couldn't quite pinpoint why uh, regulation happened in this particular moment, you do kind of situate this process in very specific historical circumstances. So um, you also tell us that regulation of prostitution was devised as a means to protect men and certain men, to be more precise. So it wasn't a strategy to protect women, right? And this is tightly close to chapter three which is titled Policing Women. And here you discuss the context in which Lima's Barrio Rojo, or Red Light District, was established in 1928. So tell us why reformists came to see regulation of prostitution as, I don't know if I call it this double-edged sword that meant protecting certain men and policing women. Here, I was super interested in how men are seen as victims while women are considered like the vectors of disease. So they, they're they not seen as victims, right? Well, I mean, uh, sexual workers. And why? what is the role of race in this process? Because I was really intrigued um, by the fact that in this period, authorities shut down brothels that catered to Afro-Peruvian men While they allow the proliferation of brothels that serve upper and middle classes. So, tell us a little bit about this particular moment, so central to your book, and the role uh, of race and racial ideas.
1: Yeah. I mean, so perhaps the the place to start is with this sort of basic idea at the heart of the regulationist paradigm, which is that, you know, if, if men need sex, right? Uh, and if men cannot access sex, bad things will happen. And so, prostitution, you know, I mean, not, not just in, in, in the 19th century, but even before that, was often thought of as a kind of uh, sexual safety valve for, for men, right? If, if men could not satisfy their sexual needs in the context of, of marriage, then prostitutes offered a, an important service to men where they I guess you could call it maybe their excess. Sexual desire could be satisfied. So, for for regulationists, I mean, the, the way that they, they they framed this was that you know men needed sex. If they didn't get it from prostitutes, they would get it in other ways, which were worse from point of view of their social of the social outcomes, if you like. Uh, and so, it made sense to help men access sex, even if it meant that they paid for it and make sure that the sex that they accessed uh, in brothels was not going to make them sick, was not going to give them a venereal disease, etc. So so regulation was you know, partly about making sure that men's sexual desires were met and that in doing so, worse outcomes were prevented, but also about making sure that when men accessed sex in brothels, they did so in a way that did not harm them. Uh, so this is really why regulation, as I understand it, uh, is, was ostensibly about protecting uh, men and their uh, access to sex. And at the heart of this is this notion that uh, the uh, philosopher Amya Srinivasan has called uh, the right to sex, right, which is a sort of debate that is uh, very contemporary in some ways. So yeah, there's, there are those two aspects. And the reason that men's uh, access to sex needed to be protected was that if men became ill because of venereal disease, they would then pass it on to their families. And, and generally, you know, this would kind of undermine the vitality of the male population, but also the population as a whole in a context in which, you know, as we discussed earlier, the medicalization of society uh, required governments to uh, oversee the health of uh, the population. At the same time, in Chapter 3, uh, I look at how regulation also implied the kind of policing of female uh, sexuality. What, what you see is that at the same time that uh, the system of regulation established a series of brothels where men could go, and so it was believed they could access sex in, in a safe way, Uh, It was imperative that this system of regulation did not create a a kind of moral context that was harmful to women. Women who were not considered prostitutes needed to be shielded from this world of prostitution. So it was imperative that brothel prostitution took place in certain parts of the city, certain uh, places within the city that, you know, removed them from the gaze of women children uh, uh, well women and, and children so a lot of the regulations have to do with where brothels can be located and what i argue in 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 the in the chapter is that underpinning this logic was the fear that the sexuality of of prostitutes might trigger a similar type of sexuality in in women in, in general, right? And so um, I look at the ways that the the figure of the sort of the liberated woman of the 1920s, which is kind of associated with the, the flapper, or as she was known in Peru, la, la mujer muchacho, uh, how that figure in a lot of the discourse of the time is very much associated with with the prostitute, right? That, that There is a very clear... In my mind, at least, a clear conflation of the flapper and the prostitute, and I see this as a as a critique of uh, women who were kind of claiming a greater say in, in in social and and political life, but also as a way of kind of policing a female sexuality, which was understood to be transgressive and and dangerous. And the way in which it was released was by kind of associating it with the sexuality of uh, the prostitute. Sorry, and I didn't touch on the uh, question of Afro-Peruvian men. So this is really a story of what happens when regulation is established. And what you see is that the police, which is given the power to open and, or allow the opening and then close closing brothels, uses this power to kind of shape the geography of prostitution in Lima. And in particular, they target very clearly uh, brothels that were located in areas of the city, particularly on the other side of the Rimac River, in uh, a part of, of Lima called the Rimac or Abajo el Puente, which was an area of, of Lima with a large uh, Afro-Peruvian population, and the brothels there, which you know were brothels, but they were also you know, kind of drinking places and so forth, are are perceived by by the authorities as particularly dangerous, as places where the capacity of the state to ensure that, you know, the, the non-contagion of venereal diseases is, is guaranteed cannot happen because of the type of clientele, the type of women who work there uh, etc and so there is this very differentiated treatment of brothels run by uh, afro- Peruvian women and men who uh, which cater for uh, primarily afro- Peruvian uh, clientels, and then other brothels which we see a kind of a proliferation of it in this period which come to be associated with the immigration of European prostitutes so uh, a phenomenon that you know other historians have Looked at, uh, particularly in Buenos Aires, uh, but also in in other cities in in Latin America in in the nineteen teens and twenties, when European uh, prostitutes find their way to 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 Latin America, uh, in the wake of the First World War, and in Lima too, you see and you can you can find this in in immigration records a number of women who come to 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 Lima to set up brothels and these brothels. Are sort of encouraged by the police, they're seen as the sort of brothels that are consonant with their strategy, whereas the Afro-Peruvian ones are, are clearly not.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. And I think in this answer, you kind of show us the breadth of your approach, right? You're touching so many different topics. And you do that so naturally. It's, it's, quite remarkable. And for our listeners, if they're interested in any of these things, I I believe they should go and and read the book because it's it's wonderful. Um, Now let's move to chapters uh, four and five, which are titled Medicalizing Sin and Combating Venereal Disease. Here you analyze the development of institutional capacities for the treatment of venereal disease. So you focus on a shift in discourse that occurred um, in the 1920s and 30s. So while prior to this period, as we've talked, uh, medical doctors believed that policing prostitutes was the principal method to control the spread of venereal disease, in the 20s and 30s uh, there was a shift in strategies and now sex education and um, the expansion of treatment facilities were the preferred methods for regulation. So why did this change occurred. And why did the expansion of treatment centers coincide with a preoccupation among doctors about venereal disease in Peru's indigenous population?
1: Right. So in essence, I mean, what what you start to see is that the the biomedical establishment that deals with venereal disease grows. In the 19-teens, 20s, there's a uh, an institution called the Asistencia Pública, which is created in 1911 to essentially implement the policy of, of regulation, and over the course of the 20s and 30s, it, it expands in capacity. It's underfunded, etc. But it it starts to gain some degree of capacity to um, to oversee the management of prostitution in and venereal disease in in, in Lima. And it starts to collect data. It, it has a better kind of, um, it increases, if you like, the cognitive capacity of the state vis-à-vis venereal disease and prostitution. And here the role of uh, of its chief in the 1930s, uh, uh, Viktor Egi gurin is particularly important. Uh, he kind of is an important, if largely unknown, uh, doctor, who takes uh, over the asistencia publica in the early 30s and goes on to really kind of expand its its reach not only in lima but also to the rest of peru and he starts to look at the data and he sort of realizes that uh, you know as i mentioned before most venereal disease infections are not uh, occurring as a consequence of men purchasing sex from prostitutes but rather uh, as we might say today in the community right and so this shifts the uh, the strategy from merely policing prostitutes and making sure that the prostitutes are undergoing their medical examinations you know by this time actually it was pretty clear to doctors that subjecting prostitutes to medical examinations once a week did very little to control the spread of venereal disease and the treatments that were available uh, even after you know new drugs come uh, on the scene, like Salva San in the 19-teens, uh, they did very little to to either control the spread or uh, cure uh, those who, who were infected, particularly by, by syphilis. So other types of strategies need to be devised. And the one that uh, Ege Guring in particular favours is, is sex education. Right? So, you know, he kind of, implements a whole series of measures lectures um, the showing of films um, uh, in in schools in 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 um, in factories and so forth and a lot of these methods he kind of borrows from what uh, military doctors had started to do a few years earlier uh, for military doctors it was very important to make sure that you know the troops troops were uh, healthy and free from venereal disease, and they were very concerned that, that the soldiers and the sailors had very high uh, levels of venereal disease uh, infection, and so they had begun to to promote sex education in barracks and, uh, and so forth. And at the same time, Ege as uh, at the same time as he's kind of promoting this, this uh, strategy of sex education, he is strengthening the capacity to offer Treatment now treatment uh, at the time, as I said, was not particularly uh effective uh it was extremely painful, there was still quite a lot of dependence on uh use of arsenic and and, and so forth, even in the salvasan era you know I mean Salvasan was seen as a as a kind of magic bullet that would solve the problem of venereal uh, disease of syphilis. Uh, it, in the end, it didn't prove as effective as it was originally uh, hoped, and it's only really with you know the, the sort of the period of antibiotics that uh, you start to see a, a real change in in the, the effectiveness of of treatment of venereal disease. But nevertheless, the capacity to to treat venereal disease patients increases significantly in this period, with more and more treatment centres established in Lima and elsewhere. And by the 1940s, there's a sort of a national venereal disease program, uh, which is present in most uh, major Peruvian uh, cities. And as you indicated in your question, this coincides with a growing attention among medical doctors to the indigenous population in Peru. And I look at this because I was particularly interested in the many ways in, in which the debates about venereal disease are highly racialized in the Peruvian context. And you see it first in the late 19th century and early 20th century in the ways that Asian immigrants, and particularly Chinese immigrants to Peru, are. I mean, they are stigmatized in many ways, uh, accused of uh, introducing all kinds of diseases into Peru, in particular, bubonic plague, and Marcos Cueto has, has researched that very effectively. Uh, but they are also blamed for the uh, high levels of infection of syphilis and in, in very kind of racialized uh, discourses at that time. But by the 1930s and 40s, that the focus, this kind of racialized reading of venereal disease focuses, uh, shifts focus to indi- the indigenous population, which is seen as either very vulnerable to venereal disease because they are understood to be kind of sexual innocence, or as a real threat because of their high propensity to sexual immorality and therefore uh, you know the, the likelihood that they will become infectious and infect everyone else. So I, I devote a significant part of chapter five to to this question, to how medical doctors in particular, but others also start to discuss venereal disease in the context of indigenous populations and how they racialize that discussion in, in, in very overt ways.
0: Yeah, and I think particularly in this moment, this discussion about the racialization of disease epidemics is so important uh because what we are living, what we've been discussing in the last in the last week, or so I think uh, listeners that also have those preoccupations today can find in your book a very interesting uh, historical example. Um, so, okay, we uh, arrived to chapter six, which is the last chapter. And this chapter is titled Abolishing Buys. Um, so, here, as the title suggests, uh, you analyze the closure of Lima's red light district in, in 1956. So you tell us that abolitionism brought doctors, lawyers, and feminists um, who criticized regulation on medical and moral terms. So the movement criticized regulation by challenging assumptions about male sexuality, in particular the double standard, and also by arguing that the state promoted a lax sexuality. Um, Though the movement embraced feminist arguments, abolitionists were guided by very conservative sexual mores. And and they try to define sexuality as exclusively linked to procreative ends. So you tell us that, I mean, you've told us already that abolitionism has existed for a long time, but in the case of Peru, it was influential in the 1930s, but it really took hold in the late 1940s and 1950s. Um, So why, why was abolitionism uh, successful in this moment and not before? And I'm very intrigued about the role of feminists in this story uh, because as you tell us, they participated in a very conservative movement that at the end had very traditional ideas about female sexuality, uh, sexual roles. So I, I want us to finish with this last chapter. you telling us a little bit more about this?
1: Yeah. So what I show in, in this chapter is that by 1956, when the red light district is, is closed, the, the idea that you know, uh, a red light district in Lima could contribute to governing venereal disease was very difficult to, to sustain, right? There were few people who, I mean, there were still people who supported regulation, but it was difficult for them to make the argument that the red light district was contributing to a kind of public health initiative. And by contrast, those who were very critical of regulation could point to the red light district as evidence of the failure of regulation. And so, you know, the, the emphasis of abolitionists was very much on shutting down the red light district as the sort of the symbol of regulationist policy. And they, they proved quite successful in influencing public opinion through, you know, this was a, a period when you start to see the kind of proliferation of like a more popular press more kind of uh, a yellow press if you like uh, populist press even and which uh, was more willing than sort of the traditional press to take up issues like prostitution and and venereal disease and even put them on the, the front pages and so these these there were a number of newspapers of this kind in this period that take up the campaign against the red light district and proved quite effective in influencing public opinion, but particularly influencing the opinion of those who were in a position to shut it down. So municipal authorities, prefect and and so forth. And what's interesting is that in the group of people who are kind of pushing this agenda, you find this mix of lawyers and uh, doctors and some feminists uh, and actually, feminists who are also lawyers and who are also doctors, uh, and in particular, one one uh, woman uh, who are, you know I found very interesting, uh, a lawyer called Susana Solano, who plays a very important role in in, in the abolitionist campaign, uh, who was also a key figure in the Peruvian eugenics movement, and you know who is a as you as you said, he's a campaigner against, you know, what she sees as the double standard, right? And so like a lot of feminists in the early 20th century, she uh, was very critical of the fact that, you know, men were held to a standard of sexual behavior, was different to that of of women. Um, She didn't agree with the idea that men had sexual needs that needed to be met, because you know, not meeting them would create uh, more problems. She was very much in favor of abstinence and, you know, and sexual responsibility, if you like. And of course, she was also in favor of kind of first wave feminist issues like more jobs for women. She viewed prostitution, actually, like a lot of regulationists did, also as something that happened because women had no access to employment. Um, so her critique was, you know, it was a, there was a sort of social and political critique there of a society that didn't create opportunities for women in, in, in employment, in education, and so forth. Uh, there was a critique also of what she saw as irresponsible male sexual behavior, but she did not kind of set out to, to challenge traditional gender roles, as it were, and still saw you know, sexuality is something that should be channeled towards, you know, procreative ends. So, in some ways, she, she wasn't uh, uh, in favour of sexual freedom or or anything like that. And there were other feminists like her earlier in the period in the period that I I've just been talking about that uh, took quite similar uh, positions. At that said, there were other feminists who. Uh, were more radical, if you like. So this is this wasn't the only position within the Peruvian feminist movement, to, to the extent that there was one, but it proved influential in shaping, you know, how abolitionism viewed the role of, of women in a kind of post-regulation uh, period.
0: Yeah, and I think here you you show us how you also contribute to a literature that. Uh, Even if this is not your focus, but how this literature that shows that feminism, feminist movement, feminist women were also participants of conservative movements, eugenics. uh, So this is also uh, an invitation for for listeners interested in those topics. So we have discussed uh, a lot of aspects of your book, and I've taken uh, too much of, our, of your time already. But I, I like to finish uh, these interviews by asking you how you think your book speaks to the present. And your conclusion actually does that. You, you tell us why this history is still very present in Peru today. But I just wonder if there's anything you want to tell us, whether about the conclusion or something else that you've, you've come to think about, how your book, uh, this history, matters. For for what is happening today,
1: well, you know, I think that what what the what I point to in the conclusion are certain continuities, right, in, in particularly in how I guess prostitution is talked about in Peru, the the sort of assumptions that that guide current discussions on on sex work, and also I guess just generally, you know, perhaps this is somewhat banal, but that you know, prostitution, the history of prostitution, is a bit like a mirror on which we can see society reflected. And uh, so, you know, studying the history of prostitution seems to me, at least this was my experience, got me thinking about lots of things that um, can help us understand the history of Peru a a bit better. Hopefully others who read the book will, will agree with that.
0: I agree and I thought that conclusion was a very nice way to round up the discussion. So, just to finish up, can you tell us what are you working on? I mean, you just published the book, so I'm sure you still your work now has to do with talking ab- about this book, but what are you working on? What are your plans for the next couple of years?
1: Yes, so I've been working for a, a few years now with a colleague Martin Berghel Uh, of the Universidad de Quilmes in Argentina on um, an edited volume on APRA, uh, the Peruvian political party. And I'm starting to think about a a new kind of book project, which would be a a kind of biography of José Carlos Mariátegui. That's the the plan anyway. We'll see if that happens.
0: Awesome. I mean, I know Mariátegui is so important for Peruvian history. Uh, Latin American history as well. So I'm very looking forward to those projects. Um, Thank Thank you. Thank you for talking to me. And this was wonderful. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much.